Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Margaret Simons is a journalist and the author of 14 books, including biographies of Malcolm Fraser and Penny Wong. She won the 2015 Walkley Award for Social Equity Journalism and has been honoured with several Quill Awards for journalistic excellence. Today, I'm joined by Margaret Simons to talk about her latest biography, Tanya Plibersek, on her own terms. Margaret Simons, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Margaret, you write that Tanya's father, Joe Plibersek, didn't talk to his daughter about politics, but communicated by a lived example. What was that lived example, and how did it influence Tanya's life and attitudes? Well, first, his determination and his principle. Um, Joe Plibersek arrived in Australia as a refugee, as a very young man, um, and one of the reasons he was a refugee, apart from economic opportunity, was uh, he was living in communist Yugoslavia, as it then was, after the war, and he refused to abandon his Catholic faith and realised that uh, he would be forced to as an employee of local government in Yugoslavia, that he wouldn't be able to marry in a Catholic church and so on. And so he crossed borders illegally, uh, ended up in a refugee camp and then migrated to Australia and worked initially as a labourer on the um, Broken Hill Parks railway line and then um, the Snowy Mountain Scheme, which is where things really took off for him. Once Joe and his wife Rose were established in the suburb of Oyster Bay, um, he built a house for them. They were never rich, but he um, achieved security for them. And both he and Rose were both really good community members. They were the ones who always mowed the neighbour's lawn, um, who looked after their neighbours. Rose, in particular, helped out members of the community who were suffering through domestic violence. You know, they were really good community members. The other thing Joe did was always insist to his daughter that she listen to alternative points of view. Tanya had two brothers, Ray described as the responsible caretaker, and the other brother, Phil, the charismatic risk-taker. Two very different brothers. So Ray was the oldest child. Um, He was born very shortly after Joe and Rose got married. Uh, He was raised speaking Slovenian. He still regards today English as being his second language. But, of course, as soon as he did learn English, which is when he went to primary school, he became the ambassador, really, for his mother particularly, but also his dad, you know, between this new English-speaking world and their home life. And as a result, he became the very sort of responsible uh, caretaker of the family, really, and and is still in that role in many ways. He lives close to his mum, drops in on her most days and so on. Um, Whereas Philip, who came along a couple of years later, um, was always a bit of a risk-taker. Not quite the black sheep of the family, they put it to me, but certainly the one who was, uh, you know, he rode a Ducati motorbike, he travelled the world, was a bit edgy, I suppose. Ray said to me that Tanya really combines both of those personalities. She came along a fair bit later. Uh, She's nearly 10 years younger than Ray. So the whole family were doted on this little blonde-haired child, the only girl in the family, apart from the mum, of course, Um, She was the focus of doting attention from not only her parents, but also her two brothers. 
And of course, that makes me think about uh, the discussions that might have been held around the dining room table at the Plibersec home. What was the tenor of those discussions? Well, Ray, as soon as he started university and probably before, um, was drawn to the Labor Party. His first job was as a land rights lawyer. Um, and he became quite passionate about Aboriginal rights and land rights, um, later became a Labor Party local councillor in the Sutherland Shire, whereas Philip was not so much uh, party political, but he became a geologist working for mining companies. He was pro-mining, certainly anti-environmentalists. The Greens didn't exist as a party. And Ray and Phil were always arguing, passionate arguments in the bedrooms, across the dinner table, and little Tanya would be sitting on the floor or sitting in the bed, initially hearing this whole debate go over her head. And then, of course, she, as she got older, beginning to participate, she remembers asking Ray, for example, you know, is communism the one where people look after each other? <laughs> and um, again, she was very influenced by this. But Joe, her father, was key because while the arguments across the dinner table were very passionate and sometimes heated, he would insist that people listen to each other and actually respond to each other's arguments. Um, and that is something which Tanya says has stayed with her. There seems to be a very strong family foundation, but the two other things that have influenced her life, one of those is her Catholic faith and the other is feminism. How did that upbringing within the Catholic faith inform her worldview? And what was then and is now her attitude to that faith? Catholicism was central to the family. As I've already said, it was one of the reasons that Joe chose to leave Yugoslavia, as it then was. Rose was also a Catholic, as it, you know, the vast majority of Slovenians are and were at the time. So they were very observant. Uh, they weren't hugely showy about their religion, but the children were expected to go to Mass at least once a week. You know, it was part of the rhythm of their days. As Tanya grew up, and as you say, um, became a feminist, although she would say she was always a feminist. Um, she arrived at a position that she describes today as not buying the whole package. She uh, doesn't believe, for example, in the virgin birth or transubstantiation or any of those more rigid um, Catholic beliefs. But she does say that her values basically come from that Catholic faith, um, certainly the values of helping others, of the community, and people who know her well put it higher than that. They say she still goes to Mass. Um, she still um, is part of the Catholic Church in, in a cultural sense, if not as a total believer. Her friend Kim Williams describes her as an old-fashioned lefty Catholic. But uh, on the other hand, she describes herself as not really a sinner. And she struggled to come up with subjects for confession. Yes, that's right. Um, so as a child, she'd come up with, you know, minor things like arguing with their brothers or whatever. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, I think in many ways, Kim Williams is right. I think um, obviously Catholicism is a big part of Labour Party history and culture. And I think she is an example of that. Yeah. I think it also aligns quite nicely with something else you write in this book. There's no apparent dirt file on Tanya Plibersek. That's right. Um, there's not, I mean, even among her detractors and political rivals, there isn't a sniff of corruption or maladministration. Um, you know, the criticisms of her are more of questioning her capacities in various ways rather than suggesting that there's some dim, dark secret. 
even the, and this is quite extraordinary because anyone who understands the Australian Labor Party knows that uh, New South Wales Labor Party politics can be pretty filthy, certainly played hard. Um, Tanya is right at the heart of that, holding the electorate of Sydney, um, and yet she has remained mostly aloof from the dirtier aspects of factional politics. The second defining element of her life is her commitment to advancing the status of women. She questioned many of the gender roles as a child, but um, what kind of feminist is Tanya Plibersek? It's part of the essence of her, really. As you say, even in primary school, she remembers questioning why boys and girls lined up in separate lines. And she was educated by some very strong feminists at school. So that was a continuing influence. But she says she doesn't remember a time when she wasn't a feminist, even before she knew the word. She was questioning um, why women had often a subsidiary role. Her experience of her family was very much that her parents were different but equal in family decision-making. One of her first um, forays into public life, if you like, was at the University of Technology, Sydney, where she was elected as the women's officer. She was involved there in dealing with quite severe cases of sexual harassment among the student body and also women's safety, particularly the Karingai campus, which was part of UTS. Um, there was many nurses being educated there. The car park was a long way from the lecture hall. At night time, Tanya arranged for security guards to be available to walk women to their cars because of their nervousness around that. And so feminism and also the impact of men's violence against women have been continuing themes right through her life and her political career. What was Tanya's pathway into the Labour Party? She had been a prominent in the politics of her high school. She'd been on the Student Representative Council and she gave a speech um, as a teenager at a local government function and one of the local councillors, a Labour Party member, said, with views like yours, you should be in the Labour Party. And so she took that up. She joined the Labour Party at the age of 15 but left about a year and a half later. And that was because she was opposed to the Hawke government's position on uranium mining, particularly, and export of uranium, and also concerned about uh, their compromises on land rights, Aboriginal land rights. Right through university, she remained non-party political, probably, broadly speaking, to the left of the Labour Party. Uh, but what brought her back into the fold was her first job outside university, other than part-time student jobs which was with the New South Wales government's um, domestic violence office or office of women, but the domestic violence part of that. It was during the time of the Liberal government. The relevant minister was Kerry Chikorovsky. And Tanya became convinced that the Liberal Party was completely uninterested in the impact of domestic violence on women, didn't want to talk about it, only wanted to talk about women of achievement rather than disadvantaged women. And she became so disgusted with that that she both became a bit of a whistleblower, um, but also decided that if she wanted to achieve change, she had to be part of something larger. And there were other prominent women around at the time, people like Meredith Bergman, who was a New South Wales um, government MP, and Simons, who she admired very much, and they also influenced her. When she nominated as the Labor candidate for the federal seat of Sydney, um, was that pathway to pre-selection an easy one? No, it wasn't. And both her nomination and her victory were completely unexpected. 
So the person who held the seat of Sydney before her was Peter Baldwin. He resigned pretty much without warning, basically had a hissy fit um, out of frustration at the party's refusal to implement some of his ideas and resigned with virtually no warning. Nobody knew about it. And the result of that, of course, was that even though Sydney was a prized seat, the jewel in the crown, really, um, nobody had stitched it up. The factional bosses hadn't had a chance to do the deals. It was understood that it was a seat that belonged to the left and partly because of the affirmative action policies I referred to earlier, it was understood that it would be desirable for it to go to a woman. But outside that, it was wide open and there were you know, more than a dozen candidates, um, including several women who were much more obviously qualified than Tanya, women who had been active in the Labour Party at local government and union level, whereas Tanya was still a relatively recent arrival, having left the Labour Party and then come back in later in life. So there were people who now are big Tanya admirers who at the time thought, this is ridiculous, what's this still very young woman doing, going for such a prize seat? But she won the pre-selection just through sheer hard work. Certainly the case that Albanese didn't oppose her, and when he was asked, he was already a very powerful figure in the left wing of the Labour Party in New South Wales. He didn't oppose her. If he had opposed her, then she probably wouldn't have got it. Um, and he sort of smiled on her from a distance, but um, but didn't actively lobby for her, and in fact had offered the seat to somebody else before she got it. So um, it was really sheer hard work. She went out and spoke to just about every branch member. She seems to have been very well connected to the people within the electorate, and that seems to be one of the pathways to her success. Yes, absolutely. Um, she was living in the electorate at that time, although she wasn't raised there. And um, as part of the pre-selection battle, she went to all the branches, spoke to virtually every branch member, had spreadsheets of who the individuals were and their concerns, you know, just sheer hard political yakka. And yes, today she remains a very active local member, perhaps arguably more so than she needs to be, given it is a safe seat. Um, there are many people who say that if it weren't for Plibersek, the seat would turn green, as, of course, the seat of Melbourne in Victoria has already done. Um, so there probably are green voters who stick with voting Labor um, because of Tanya. She is much admired for her skill as a communicator and a media manager. She's been widely recognised as having the ability to carry the Labor message. What do you attribute that skill to? Well, it's partly innate I think her natural personality she is has always been very articulate and polished in her communication it you know earlier in her life it led people to assume that she had a private school education such was her polish whereas of course she is the product of a state school and working class parents but also she studied journalism at UTS um, Wendy Bacon well-known investigative journalist and journalism educator uh, supervised her honours thesis and had a fair bit to do with her and she learned a lot of the skills. She didn't pursue journalism, of course, but she learned a lot of the skills in journalism. For example, she told me that when she's doing a television interview these days, when you do a TV interview, you're often talking to a robot camera. There's no other, no actual human being in the room with you. And she says that she uses a trick she learned during that course of looking at the camera and imagining there's somebody she really likes behind the camera to whom she has to explain whatever it is somebody who's intelligent but not necessarily across detail. And, in fact, she imagines her mother is there and explains whatever it is to her mother in her mind. 
Tanya's relationship with Alan Jones is quite unusual for someone from her side of politics. On one hand, she has something that resembles a friendship with Alan Jones, but on the other hand, quite a robust professional relationship too, having appeared on numerous programs hosted by Alan. How do you reconcile these two vastly different positions? Well, I have to say it confounds her friends. There are many people who count themselves as close allies and friends of Tanya who simply don't understand this relationship. But as far as I can explain it, there's two things. First off, Tanya's husband, Michael Coots Trotter, who, as many people, particularly in New South Wales, will know, has a very dark past. He was a drug dealer and went to jail for that before he met her. Um, that these days, of course, he's New South Wales' most senior public servant running the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Um, but when he was first attacked for this, which was when he was press secretary for Michael Egan, the Labour Party treasurer, um, it was, he decided to go public with his story rather than try and cover it up or dodge it. This was before Tanya was a public figure. They were a couple at this stage, but nobody knew who Tanya Plibersek was. And Conservative Sydney, people such as Mark Day in News Corporation newspapers and Alan Jones, backed him. They could have torn him down, arguably. They could have ended his career. This was when Alan Jones was at the very height of his powers. He really was a kingmaker. And he instead talked about Kurt Strotter as being a very competent person, an honourable person, and there should be the capacity for people to redeem themselves. And Tanya never forgot that. At a time when Jones could have wrecked her future husband, he chose a different path. Then later, when Tanya was the member for Sydney, Alan Jones also helped her out on a couple of individual and community hard luck stories. He picks battler stories and goes in hard to lobby for one view or the other. And they were on the same side in a few things. So she says she counts him as a friend. She says they often disagree. She refused to talk to him for quite a while after his attacks on Julia Gillard, suggesting Gillard should be dumped in a chaff bag out at sea and so on. But nevertheless, she says they're friends. And when you challenge her on it, she reminds you of her father's dictum that you have to talk to the people you disagree with. And she says, you know, I, I want to convince Alan Jones's audience of the Labour Party message as much as Jones himself. Tanya has been the champion of a range of issues, affordable housing, gender equality, the status of women, domestic violence, and the treatment of refugees. But what is her approach to policy formation and development? How is she regarded in that sphere of political life? Yes, well, one of the things that her critics would say of her is that she's not a great policy brain. And indeed, even her supporters uh, don't nominate. When you ask her supporters what are her strengths, policy formation is not one of the ones that comes to the fore voluntarily. There is one exception to that, one stunning exception to that, I think, which is when she was Minister for Women, she was the person responsible for the national plan um, to prevent violence against women and their children, which was a stunning policy innovation, still, you know, under preparation, if you like, in need of review and hard effort. It's not the sort of change that is easily achieved. But that was undoubtedly Tanya's achievement. In the other portfolio she's held, housing you mentioned, she was also health minister for a while. I think she has been mainly responsible for good implementation of policy ideas that were given to her in various ways. Um, some people who dealt with her describe her as being more like a senior public servant, concerned with good administration and 
um, and so on, rather than a sort of passionate policy innovator. And some see in that the influence of her husband, who, as I already said, is a very senior public servant. So, um, yeah, she's a safe pair of hands, a good administrator. There have been no big stuff-ups or mistakes in any of the portfolios she's managed, including housing, which she was in charge of during the housing stimulus under the Rudd government, a massive amount of money injected at very short notice into the area. People will remember the building the education revolution and so on, uh, the um, home insulation program, you know, the other things under that stimulus spending all ran into trouble of various sorts. Um, but not housing. Nobody remembers the housing stimulus precisely because it went so smoothly. And that was largely her work. Tanya has had a long-standing association with Anthony Albanese, a friendship perhaps, but they have had their differences. Where is the common ground and where are the tensions in their association? Sure. Well, they first met when Tanya was only 15. Um, Albanese is um, a fair bit older than her and he was already, when she joined Young Labour, he was already senior in Young Labour, went on to hold you know, the most senior positions in the party administration for the left. Um, so it's been a long-standing friendship. Early on, when she was working for Bruce Childs, who was a factional ally of Albanese, they were very close friends, uh, closer than either of them likes to talk about now when things are cool between them. But when first Albanese and then Tanya enter Parliament, it set up a structural difficulty for them. So they hold neighbouring seats in central Sydney and they're both from the left. So that means when the factional chiefs get together to share out positions, if one prospers, the other tends to suffer from that because you can only have one of them. So that was a long-standing structural tension which exists to this day. And of course, as they both advanced and became talked about as potential leaders, if one was leader, the other couldn't be deputy because you can't have a leader and a deputy both from the left, both from the same few square kilometres of Sydney. Um, but the real rift in their relationship, there was a gradual calling, partly due to that structural tension, partly because Tanya became quite close to Gillard when um, Albanese was sticking with Rudd. But the big rift came in 2013 after that election when Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese were the two contenders for the leadership of the party. Now, Tanya, as a member of the left, was expected to vote for Albanese and support his bid, and she did. But Bill Shorten made it known that he would be happy to have her as his deputy. A journalist, Patricia Cavellas, rang her office and said, would you be prepared to serve as Shorten's deputy? And she said, yes, I would. And that meant that those in the party who wanted to see her as part of the leadership team, and there were plenty of them, perhaps particularly women, were given the signal that they had to vote for Shorten rather than Albanese. Albanese's, I think, never forgiven her for that. Um, and from then on, uh, she, she did become, of course, Shorten's deputy. She served as his deputy for many years, was a very loyal deputy. Um, and many people who don't like Shorten um, also have found that very hard to reconcile. There's a lot of speculation and a lot of tension around her potential to rise to the very top, the leader of the Labour Party and the Prime Minister of Australia. Does Tanya Plibersek possess the ambition and the ruthlessness necessary to achieve that? She's certainly ambitious and right from when she went for that pre-selection something which, you know, nobody expected her to nominate, nobody expected her to succeed. 
And the way she went for that against expectations, against, as I say, more obviously qualified, solid Labour women, um, certainly shows both ambition and a degree of ruthlessness, I think, at a very young age. When she said she would be shortened deputy and then served in his deputy at the time, it was a leapfrogging over Albanese, who had been more senior to her in the leadership stakes. You'd have to say now she probably picked the wrong horse. <laughs> um, so, yes, there is both ambition and ruthlessness to a degree. But I do think it's also true to say that she's a bit reticent about seizing the top job and about taking an area of policy and making it her own. Um, she says herself that she's not a believer in the great man or great woman theory of history, that the team is more important than the leader. She has been mostly critical of all of Labour's leadership destabilisation during her time in Parliament, dating right back to Kim Beasley and Jenny Macklin. She was very close to Macklin. Beasley was leader, obviously. Macklin was deputy. And um, it was Rudd and Gillard who unseated them. Um, and she remains critical of that. She says she thinks that Beasley would have won the 2007 election, um, maybe not by the same margin that Rudd did, and that the party would have been better as a result, that there then would have been an orderly transition of leadership. Um, then, you know, the Gillard government, as she thinks it probably would have been, you know, might have continued to win in 2012 and 2013 and the Abbott government might never have been. In other words, that if Labour could only manage itself better and cease the leadership wars, that Australia would be a different country and the party would be better for it. So that's been tested a few times because there's certainly been people who've encouraged her to challenge Albanese before his victory at the last election. And I am sure she considered it, but she has never actually actively destabilised the leadership. She also possesses this enduring popularity, and it's fairly widespread. Dan Doran, her current chief of staff, uh, referring to the cult of Klippersek. If there is such a thing as the cult of Klippersek, what is it about Tanya Klippersek that inspires such loyalty and underpins her apparent popularity? I prefer to call it a fan club rather than a cult, but there certainly is a bunch of people who are you know, uncritically a fan of Tanya. What's behind it? Well, I think it's partly that she's a woman and people love to see competent women, women in particular, I think, love to see competent women who are prime ministerial potentials. Um, I think there's a strong feeling on the left of politics that another female prime minister would be good and hopefully one with a happier trajectory than Gillard. Um, also, her communication skills, her undoubted compassion and empathy, which is very conspicuous. I think those draw people to her. And maybe among those people, there's a bit less attention to things such as her policy credentials, which, as I say, are limited. She's more of a good administrator than a policy thinker, with that sole exception of the policy on violence against women. Those are the elements of it, really. Um, Personally, I don't think it's ever right to um, idolise politicians or indeed to demonise them. Um, I've written a lot of political biographies now. Most politicians go into it for the right reasons. And while there is always an element of ambition and ruthlessness, um, you know, they're trying to achieve what they see as the better vision for the nation. And they're all flawed human beings. I don't think it's healthy either for the individuals or for the country to either demonise or idolise politicians. 
discussions around the dinner table at uh, Tanya Plibersek's, I don't know if they're famous, but well-known dinner parties, it's not politics that dominates the discussion. It's things like the arts and literature. And that takes me back to something quite interesting in her past, her admiration of Jane Austen. Perhaps in the heroines of Jane Austen's novels, uh, there's something to be found in uh, Tanya Plibersek herself. Does she regard herself as a role model? Yes, I think she, I mean, I didn't ask her that question. It's a good one. Um, I think, yes, she probably does. She is certainly aware that um, her role as having held very senior jobs and political positions while raising three children and the way she's managed to juggle and combine that you know, in her public statements, there's a strong awareness that many women look at that and take encouragement from it. Um, so, yes, I think she is very aware of her um, position as a role model. Her love of Jane Austen is one of the things that um, drew me to write the biography, because uh, I am also a massive Jane Austen fan. Those who haven't read Austen or perhaps don't understand her think it's sort of chiclet, you know, Mr. Darcy in a wet shirt and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, Austen was a genius of her time within the limits of uh, women's role at that time she was just an extraordinary writer and an extraordinary observer of society and the character that uh, Plibersek most admires and identifies with and aspires to be like is Eleanor Dashwood in the book Sense and Sensibility if you haven't read the book Eleanor is the sense in that title and Tanya aspires to keep her emotions under check and to show good sense. And I think that's really quite unusual for people to see being sensible as almost a heroic virtue. But that was Austen's vision. And that's Plibersex. She hasn't always lived up to it, of course, but that's what she aspires to. There's so much more to this book than what we've been able to cover today in this chat. But Margaret, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking to Margaret Simons about her new book, Tanya Plibersek, On Her Own Terms. It's published by Black Ink, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.